production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Dan Millman is a former world champion athlete and college professor. After an intensive 20-year spiritual quest, Dan teaches worldwide, sharing realistic ways to live with a peaceful heart and a warrior spirit, transforming everyday life into a path of personal and spiritual growth. Dan says your fears are not walls but hurdles. Courage is not the absence of fear but the conquering of it. In this heartfelt conversation, Dan and I reflect on the extraordinary experiences that shaped his evolution from youthful dreamer to spiritual teacher and cultivating things like resilience and perseverance. When the student is ready or actually paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere. So we are all classmates in this divine school called Planet Earth. Daily life is our classroom. And we're all here to learn to evolve, to grow, to awaken ultimately to our unity, our essential unity. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Dan Millman is the author of many books, including Way of the Peaceful Warrior, The Hidden School and his newest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. In its essence, this conversation is about our common quest for meaning, purpose and direction. My hope is that this episode leaves you inspired, uplifted and reminds you of life's bigger picture and higher promise. Dan Millman, you have had an extraordinary life. In your childhood, you experienced bullying, which led you to ponder the question why people behave the way they do. What did you find out? Well, those bullying issues, which seemed irrational to me, uh, and also my sister's emotional ups and downs, my older sister's, did lead me to an early interest in, uh, I wouldn't have used the word, but the psychology of, of people and what made them do what they, when they did. I ended up uh, majoring in psychology in college, probably because of those early childhood experiences. But the bullies, I, I should write them thank you letters if I knew who they were now, because they um, initiated my interest in self-defense and martial arts, which uh, was part of my foundation for all that followed, uh, later discovering acrobatics and trampoline and, and gymnastics, um, which set me on, on a course uh, of which I had no idea. Um, they say we can only understand life looking backwards, but we have to live it forwards. And I wasn't uh, at, at all clear where I was going, but it was, it's been quite a, quite a ride. 
You have done amazing things as far as all your gymnastics and trampolining. To give people context, can you explain that journey to us? Well, that was the beginning of, of my journey. Um, the, the, my new book is titled Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. So I need to say first that especially for those who don't know me or don't know my work. 18 books I've written over 40 years, published in 29 languages. But uh, those who don't know me, I can't assume people are going to want to read a book about this Dan Millman character. Um, But because the book is about a spiritual quest, and because all of us are on such a quest, whether we would use those words or not, whether it's conscious or not, Uh, We're all seeking a sense of fulfillment in life, meaning and purpose, uh, worth valuable goals that are worth our time in life. So in in that sense, we're all on a a journey. And so my book is about this quest. And uh, a major part of the book, as you know, is about the four primary mentors that I met and studied with over a period of two decades, 20 years um, who influenced my life and work. And they represent, uh, as it happens, looking back, um, key aspects of what people seem to pursue when they're interested in personal development, personal growth, uh, and even uh, spiritual growth. Um, I called them, in brief, the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage. And... I'm very fortunate in meeting them in the order that I did. Um, and, and they were highly respected, uh, had, had various followers, and they were radically different from one another. Now, I'm not claiming they were the best teachers that I found the best ones, because we hear this all the time. People say, my martial arts teacher is the best, or my music teacher is the best. But a, a central tenet, of what I teach, this approach to living that I call the peaceful warrior's way, uh, is that there is no best book. There is no best teacher. There's no best religion or path or diet or exercise system. There is only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. Uh, we Life is an experiment. We have to find out what works for us. So I, I come at this all with a profound respect for Uh, everyone's process, our individual process, finding out what works for us. And much of this and these perspectives that I share are based upon a long journey. I wasn't just a a young athlete, an acrobat, and gymnast, and suddenly I'm teaching about uh, big picture uh, elements of life. Um, The book explains the preparation and evolution I went through in order to do what I do today. How did you get into becoming an athlete? Well, um, as it happens, my mother played the piano and she was playing for uh, a girl's modern dance class and she didn't want to pay for a babysitter. So she brought me along and it was 10 little girls in tutus and tights and and me. Um, And for a 10-year-old boy or 9-year-old boy, that wasn't the most exciting thing. But as it turned out, it taught me to point my toes and muscular control. So that when I discovered an old trampoline at a summer camp, 
I just, my friends jumped and left and did something else. I stayed and loved jumping up and down. Now, many people have had the experience of jumping on a trampoline. It's fun. It's almost impossible to be depressed and jump on a trampoline at the same time. So, um, but for me, I never guessed that that joy of jumping and wanting to learn somersaults and various moves would lead to a scholarship to college, a gymnastics career, a world championship, uh, coaching at Stanford University, developing an elite team, uh, becoming an assistant professor at Oberlin College in the U.S., and and all that followed. Uh, there, there was no way of, of, of seeing that. We've all heard that analogy that uh, our lives are like driving at night, um, uh, and we can only see as far as the headlight beam. But even so, we can make the whole journey. So my life has been like that, just seeing as far as I could, not very far in the distance, uh, but just, hey, let's see what happens. That's always been my attitude pretty much. And there is an incident I tell about in, in the new book. Um, I, was, I was following around my streetwise older friend. He was nine years old. I was just six years old. And he and some friends had discovered a house under construction in our neighborhood. And uh, no one was there on the weekend. So we all climbed up to the roof and there was a big sand pile 20 feet below. And of course, he jumped off the roof and sunk up to his knees in the sand pile and his friends followed. Well, I was the little kid and I, I wanted to so badly. How many of us have had that experience? Something we wanted to do, but the fear was there. And I'd go to the edge and I'd go back and I'd go to the edge and go back. And finally, he said something that I carried with me the rest of my life. He said, Danny, stop thinking about it and jump. And I found myself just bending my knees, leaning forward and pushing off. And from then on, that became kind of a, a, an approach to life. Stop thinking and jump. It served me very well in the field of athletics not so much in relationships necessarily. <laughs> so anyway, that, that uh, conveys a little bit of my, uh, some elements from my childhood that shaped life later on. How did you move forward in life? You used the analogy before of the headlight and only being able to see a bit and then the rest was darkness and just kind of always moving forward. But when times got tough and you talk about a part in the book where you had a really horrendous accident and the doctors didn't even think you would walk again. Through that, when your career has kind of come to a, a huge stop and you think it may never even take off again, I, I might not even be able to walk again, let alone be able to be the amazing athlete that I was. How do you move forward? How do you not get caught up in the darkness of what those times can be? Yes, it was a bit disillusioning and disruptive at the time. People have been injured worse, brain injuries, spinal injuries. I was lucky in that way, but I did have a badly shattered about 40 pieces, my right thigh bone. Um, and yeah, I, I actually couldn't walk straight for about a year. Um, and again, it was I had no idea whether I'd ever get back to uh, the level. I was at the, a lifetime peak of preparing for the Olympics and our team's national championships. Uh, but that not knowing can be a valuable space, you know, mm. to trust that. Uh, Alan Watts wrote a lovely book called The Wisdom of Insecurity and just not knowing. And so I got to experience that. And uh, 
I, I learned then intuitively something I learned more consciously later on, that we can't control the outcomes in our lives. Um, life comes at us in waves of change that we can't predict or control, but we can learn to surf mm-hmm. those waves. And so I surfed the waves. I made the best use I could. It, it, it left me more thoughtful, more introspective, rather than the, the typical bravado of the 20s, where you can do anything, you're bulletproof, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I matured very rapidly after that injury and the recovery, which was slow, but, but hard work. So we can't control the outcomes in our life, but we can control our efforts. And I said, I'm going to make the best effort I can. It's within my control and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And by making a good effort, we increase the odds yeah. of getting our, our desired goals over not making the effort. So I worked hard over time, and eventually they removed the big steel titanium rod they had put down the length of the bone a year later. And I started training in earnest, and finally I made it back to the team, and we won the national championships. Um, and that's all depicted in, the, in the, my first book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, also in the movie adaptation that was based on the book. Um, and, and that's all true. Um, but it was time uh, after for my 18th book to write a memoir uh, that tells the true story. Because my first book blended fact and fiction, autobiography with some fictional elements. Dan, towards the beginning of the book, you say, now has always been my favorite time. And while the story is mine, the way belongs to all of us. I, I would never write a word if I didn't think it would share something of use and help illuminate the path for other people. So even though the particulars of my story are, are unique in their way, and the, the particular mentors I met, I have to acknowledge that we all have had role models, mentors, inspiring teachers, you know, those one or two or three teachers we remember from elementary or middle or high school. Um, and so we've all had uh, uh, teachers. Uh, maybe you've heard that, you've probably heard that saying, it's gone around that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm. But I think many people misunderstand that. They, they believe that if they've suffered enough or prepared enough or are deserving enough, a teacher like my old literary character, Socrates, will appear to guide them or kick them up the path. Um, but uh, I believe what that really means is when the student is ready or actually paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere. So we are all classmates uh, in this divine school called Planet Earth. Daily life is our classroom. And we're all here to learn, to evolve, to grow, to awaken ultimately to our unity, our essential unity, uh, which may save humanity. It's, uh, the jury's out on that one. We'll see. But um, so my story is my story. And it's like we're all traveling different paths, but up the same mountain. Yeah. And that's why I referred to all of us being on a spiritual journey. And in fact, I see everyone as a peaceful warrior in training. And the reason I say that is because all of us are seeking to live with a more peaceful heart uh, amidst the chaos and changes of everyday life, a sense of serenity, equanimity. Uh, But at the same time, we have to acknowledge there are times in life, uh, we've all experienced physical, emotional, and mental pain in our life, 
There are times we need a warrior's spirit. And that's why I decided to call probably my final book by that title, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. So we're all peaceful warriors, whether or not we might use those words to describe ourselves. And I think it's a good image for each of us, male, female, young, old, it doesn't matter, to, to understand that aspect of ourselves with a peaceful heart and warrior spirit. And so the, the journey really is ours to make, uh, all of us. And those parallels, what we have in common, make it possible for me to write a book, but it also have other people relate to it. How did you get into spirituality? Well, you know, I define spirituality as that which uplifts or inspires, not based on particular beliefs or religious beliefs. It's about life's bigger picture. Uh, it's as if everyday life, we need to attend to convention, the conventional world, uh, to uh, children or school, work, careers, and all the things of everyday life. Uh, and, and yet, sometimes maybe somebody wakes up at night or in a particular moment, they'll wonder, what is it all about? And that bigger picture is like finding ourselves down in the weeds at the base of a mountain looking at all the details, and suddenly we find ourselves on the mountain peak and where and we have a panoramic view and everything looks more beautiful from the distance. So that distance, that big picture, that panorama is what many people refer to as the spiritual life, the spiritual vision of, what, of possibilities. And it's good to keep our eyes on that too. You know, there's a Serbian proverb, uh, two men looked out of prison bars, one saw mud, and the other saw stars. And mud and stars both exist. Um, We don't want to ignore the mud and pretend it's not there. We end up stepping in it. And so difficulties exist in everyday life. But we also want to remember the stars, the possibilities. You found LSD and had quite an experience, but came out of it knowing, as Richard Alpert, who was later known as Ramdas, said LSD might point the way but only sustained spiritual practice could lead to transcendence. Exactly. Uh, many elders like myself uh, are, co- are coming out of the closet, so to speak, about our LSD experiences. And my senior year in college, after I'd shattered my leg, I started wondering, what's in, what is the inner world? What's inside? And I thought, maybe someday I'll want to share with other people. So I need to know and speak from experience. So, as I describe in the book, a friend of mine on on the gymnastics team knew people who knew people, and this was Berkeley in the late 1960s, Um, so uh, he was able to get some LSD, but before he did that, he said, uh, I said, I'm interested in taking LSD, and he said, Dan, have you ever been stoned? And I went, no. He said, have you ever been drunk? And I went, no. I was a pretty straight arrow. He said, well, you better walk before you run. <laughs> you better get stoned and maybe intoxicated first. And, and I, I, I never liked alcohol, just genetic. I, yeah. just, I wish I liked wine and beer, but I just don't. I, uh, it's, so so I, just, you know, I smoked some grass and appreciated music in a new way and the munchies and all that. And, um, but after that, I, I prepared well. I read books on the subject, the psychedelic experience and and I had friends, I was in a safe environment. That's very important. And that I was prepared when I mentally, psychologically, and emotionally when I took the LSD. And it was a cosmic experience. It informed uh, my life to follow. 
Um, am I saying everyone should do it? No, I have no idea what other people should do. Um, nor have I ever used any kind of drugs for recreation, a casual use. I consider it an entheogen, which means a, a doorway to spirit. And so, um, in fact, I took LSD a few years after that, and it was pretty much a waste of my time. We always look for the first time. We want to recapture yeah. that, but there's only one first time for anything. Um, so, but that did inform my work and some of the cosmic journeys I describe in my first book were based on my memories of, of that uh, inner voyage that I, that I took with LSD. There was an interesting part of the book where you were back competing after the accident we spoke about and you do this new trick and your coach is thrilled, but you say it was over, a long-awaited goal was accomplished, but the applause didn't feel the same anymore. I had changed enough where my values, my priorities shifted. Um, I guess another way to express this is that, Sarah, when I, when I was young, I was very much into self-improvement. I uh, took courses on speed reading and speed arithmetic and, and uh, memory courses, memorizing long series of objects. And I learned ventriloquism and sleight of hand and martial arts and acrobatics. And I was just totally into self-improvement until one day it just reached a, an apex. And I, I realized that no matter how much I improve myself, I can do that forever but only one person benefited. But if I could somehow reach out to other people and touch other lives, I had no idea how at the time, um, then my life became more meaningful. If I could do that, I hadn't yet thought about writing a book. I, I really didn't know how. I taught gymnastics, but I, I shifted over time, as I wrote about in the book, to teaching more about life and principles for living through gymnastics until I just moved out of the gymnastics arena altogether. And so I'd worked so hard to recover from that leg injury and make it back into this primary goal of helping my team, which was a successful endeavor, it turned out, um, that I felt done. I, I was married to my first wife. I was married very young. I was about 20 or 21, I think, at the time. And um, we had a baby on the way. And so I had other priorities and things to do with my life to figure out how I wanted to make a living. Many of us have faced that dilemma. Uh, so, yeah, the applause was there, but it was already accomplished. It was done. When I stuck my landing and we won the nationals, that was it. And so it was time to move on. I'd already left kind of a part of me had already moved on, but I said a fond farewell to the team. We, we stay in touch all these years. We had a 50-year reunion recently. Was that hard for you to move on from gymnastics? Oddly, no. However, it, there was a bittersweet moment when my, my former wife and I were sitting in the stands at UCLA in Los Angeles and watching my teammate, Sid. Um, we were pretty much equal level. Um, watch him make the Olympic team. And, but I had work, I had to get it, you know, baby on the way and I had to work. So I really didn't pursue beyond that. So circumstances were such where, despite that bittersweet moment, and it was mostly sweet, I was thrilled for my, my friends to make the team. Um, no. Now, I know with many athletes, it's very difficult 
They retire, then they come back, then they retire again because, because their identity is wrapped up in mm. their sport. Yes. And I, one of my strongest reminders and recommendations to athletes, to painters, to photographers, uh, to radio uh, podcast hosts, um, is don't say I am a podcast host. I am an athlete. I am a musician. I am a painter. Instead, say I practice. Uh, I practice this. I do this. I do sports. I do painting. I do photography. That way, it's just something we do rather than our identity. Mm. And so it's easier to move on. It's easier to make changes. And if we have disappointments in our professional area, we don't lose our own worth. Mm. We don't, our identity isn't at risk. Uh, it's just something we, we do. I see that a lot with people who lose their job or something happens and they're no longer that person that they thought they were for 40 years or, and their identity is all wrapped up in their job. They might work for another company or something like that. And then they suddenly get made redundant. And I, I will randomly think about that. I mean, I obviously have my own business, but I think, what would I be if I wasn't this? And then it's, you know, that idea of almost being the witness to who you are without all the things around you and the titles and what people know you as and kind of then getting to that space of peace. But how do people find that away from even being a mother or being a sister or whatever to find that piece of just being? We have to be gentle and compassionate with ourselves. Um, a wonderful writer, I think it may have been Barbara Kingsolver, who said, there comes a time we have to take our life in our arms. Um, and recognize that we are not at risk. We just, in fact, we are different people. We may be a, a mother, a father in one circumstance, a worker in another, a, an artist in another. We change all the time. Life is a series of moments. Um, Cesare Pavese once said, we do not remember days, we remember moments. Mm. And these are all moments. Um, someone came up to me after a seminar I gave once, a talk, and they said, Dan, I feel, I don't know, so inspired. I said, don't worry, it'll pass. <laughs> because inspiration comes and goes. And yeah. Somebody else came up to me at another time and said, you seem like a nice guy, Dan. I said, sometimes. Because sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm that. It's true for all of us. Yeah. And so we're not just a one thing. Our life doesn't depend on one thing. We have to see that. And, you know, the, the saying we've all heard that uh, when one door closes, another may open. Um, so we have to be more flexible. You know, I once asked one of the four mentors, the sage, the fourth one I describe in the book, I said, isn't an optimal mind a peaceful mind? And he said, no. He said, if your house is on fire and you need to get some people out of there, maybe a peaceful mind isn't so appropriate necessarily. Perhaps calm, perhaps focused, but he said the best mind is a flexible mind. Mm -hmm. And the best self is a flexible self where we adapt to circumstances uh, and, to, and to change. 
And so the more accepting we are, the more the better we learn to serve. Um, uh, the more smoothly we respond to life's changing circumstance. Do you believe that the universe, the energy, whatever you want to call that surrounds us, is always friendly in the sense of when things seem to not go how you had envisaged and it gets you down or you feel like you're just waiting for things to happen and they haven't happened or you imagined your life to be a certain way and it doesn't seem to have come to fruition. Do you believe that everything's working for you? Well, Ram Das, whom you mentioned, um, Richard Alpert, Ram Das once said, and he reminded us all that when we don't get what we want, we suffer in a sense, dissatisfaction. When we get what we definitely don't want, we also suffer or have a sense of dissatisfaction. And even if we get exactly what we want, we still have a level of suffering or dissatisfaction because we can't be guaranteed to hold on to anything mm. our whole life. Again, it's a world of change. So by learning to flow, learning to accept, um, it, it helps. It's, it's a life skill. You know, I went from focused on how to produce more talent as an athlete. And I, as, I, as a coach, I experimented with how athletes could become more talented in the sense of learning faster and easier, rising to higher levels. But over time, my emphasis shifted. It's not, a, not about just sports, but what life skills do we need to learn in order to live wisely and well in everyday life? I view, as I said, the earth is a school, but also daily life that you could be said to be a form of spiritual weight training. If you don't lift any weights, you don't get stronger. So we also need to appreciate the value of adversity, of challenge, of difficulties. We don't have to learn to like it or pretend to like it, but we can at least remember that like the difficulties we've gone through in the past, the various kinds of pain and, and challenge, um, we come out a little stronger and a little wiser, that form of weight training. Mm -hmm. So when we keep that thread of attention, we can start to almost appreciate uh, the challenges that life brings. Because in this school, daily life is guaranteed to teach us everything we need to learn in order to evolve as a human being. You know, a man came to me once after a talk I gave, and he said, Dan, um, I read your first book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and now I'm interested in spiritual practice. But I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. How can I find the time? And he came to understand that his wife, his children, and his full-time job were his primary forms of spiritual practice. They demand more and they develop us more than sitting in a cave somewhere and meditating. I know because I've done both. So that's really the emphasis I bring and to those people who are facing challenges. And we all are today with the worldwide pandemic uh, and limitations. Um, we are going to come out wiser and stronger because of all this. We're learning a lot. It's like the banks used to have stress tests. Now all humanity has the stress test. And, it's, it's, and we're seeing where the weak points are. Yeah and hopefully to correct them. 
There was an interesting part of the book where you spoke about a 40-day intensive training. You walk out of those things because I've been to not a 40-day but a similar kind of setup where you go away for a week or so and you're with all these really like-minded people and you do meditation, you have spiritual conversations and lectures the whole time and you walk out and you're like, can take on the world and everything's unbelievable. But then you get back to your daily life and you realise that, you know, you still got to put the bins out and you still got to go to work and you still come across those people who may annoy you. And suddenly it, it reminds me of that Ram Dass quote saying, feel enlightened, go spend a week with your family. Exactly. It's that whole idea of trying to then somehow put it into your everyday because, I mean, our life is that. Our life is the everyday. It isn't, you know, as you said, being in a cave for a period of time. I mean, that is a period of time, but that is not like our our reality day to day. So I wondered how you went with having those big times where you did go and, and have a really intense spiritual experience and then go and put that into your everyday life. Well, that's a very fair and important question. Um, And many of us have experienced something like that, a yoga retreat, um, uh, a survival camp um, where we did some special activity. And, but the question becomes, what can we sustain in everyday life? What is simply a set of memories or an inspiring time? Uh, Retreats are wonderful. They're like holidays, vacations, sometimes hard work holidays. Um, and the one I went to wasn't merely inspiring. The 40-day, 10 hours a day, um, you know, who has time for that today? But back then, it caught me at a, there just the right time. I was traveling on a faculty research grant. I was in California, and the training, a friend of mine, the old teammate who uh, hooked me up with the LSD, said he just did an incredible training. And I said, Dan, if you can, drop everything and, and do this. So that's when I met or at least I encountered the professor's school. And we, I did 30 or 40 different sorts of meditations for different purposes, body work, movement exercises, breath work, a combination of amazing things with maps of the levels of consciousness and how we uh, respond to stresses in life and tension release. Um, So it it was an an amalgam of a global heritage of spiritual techniques. But the point that I make in the book is that I did probably the creme de la creme of intensive trainings, uh, broad-based, not just Hindu, not just Chinese, but but global, the the exercises that had been tested for years by the professor uh, and groups of people. and yet there was a firewall, as you're pointing out, between the inner work, which just made me better at doing inner work. Mm. But then when I came out and had to confront uh, a difficult marriage, my first wife mm. and I, um, it was disillusioning because it really didn't help me to mature to the point of, of being able to manage that relationship um, and make it work. So... All I can do is underscore your point. Now, when I was training in gymnastics, just to use an analogy, I trained daily and improved over time. But there were times I went to a boot camp and I trained intensively morning till night. And yes, I did reach a peak of condition. But when I left, I gradually went back to my normal, sustainable condition. 
So um, that's why I emphasize that even though these things can be good for, you know, in a spiritual test of, of intensity, um, it's really what we do every day yeah. that is part of our training. That's why the arena of the peaceful warrior, again, I view everyone as that peaceful warrior, is daily life. Because that's what brings us the challenges we need uh, to evolve. Whether I'm talking about things as mundane as figuring out how to fix some plumbing uh, or, the, or the wisdom of calling a plumber who knows how to do that, um, to relationships. I mean, how many of us have learned some things about ourselves and made a jump in self-knowledge through a relationship difficulty? Mm. Many people can relate to that. So I emphasize it again. Everyday life, it doesn't have to be a spiritual ashram. One doesn't have to come across the same teachers I did. But my, the journey I take the reader through uh, with the technological, exercise-based approach to enlightenment with a professor, many people have done EST or the form or LifeSpring or Avatar, one of many different methods and systems or yoga schools. Um, and they have their value for sure, but they have the limitations as well. And that's why I eventually moved on to the guru, which was an entirely different, radically different approach to spiritual life. I mean, the guru once said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. So he was really a radical type guy. And he was uh, an illumined being. But what I learned after eight years with this particular guru, um, known by many names. He started out as Franklin Jones, then Bubba Free John, Da Free John, Adi Da. Um, but I learned that every teacher is human and every human has flaws and foibles. Mm. Um, and so did he. Uh, in fact, one of my friends in that community once said he was a genuine enlightened master who would have benefited from going through a 12-step program. <laughs> So that's the paradox. You know, it's, so, it's true. Yeah. It's, I, <laughs> I, many of these people have become my friends, as I'm sure yours, and I do see their human side as well. It, it's more common than we might think. It's not all teachers yeah. uh, who are fallen angels, let's say. Um, but it was true in the case of the guru. I learned some valuable lessons. Um, and it's true in many cases, there are many respected teachers who did a lot of good, but and yet, uh, yet exploited uh, their devotees. There are some teachers become corrupted yeah. by the adulation uh, and devotion of their devotees. And it's difficult to predict who that, that's going to happen to, but I know of too many who have fallen. Um, and that's why we need to go in to the idea of working with a guru, with an authority figure, with our, with our hearts open, but also our eyes open. Yeah. And never surrender our inner knower. We have mm -hmm. to trust that essential thing of what is right for us, yes. what works for us. So That's very true. Um, I was talking to a friend recently about intuition and just how important that is because she was saying that her intuition has been really off recently with people and and we were kind of, I was, you know, guiding her on how to kind of best center that. But I think it's the most important tool that we all have and sometimes we lose sight of it. And when we're really emotionally 
charged about a certain matter, it can it can be can be quite hard to find. But it really is the compass back to to what we know in our hearts is the right thing to do. Yes. Well, I, I say in the new book that we it's hard to trust the God or goddess of our hearts while we're busy monitoring the God of opinion. Dan, you say our lives are shaped not by what we feel or think, but what we do. And um, there's a beautiful quote from the book. When running up a hill, it's okay to give up mentally as many times as you wish, as long as your feet keep moving. And I just, when I read that, I thought, God, that is just so pertinent. Like if you, if you use that in all the aspects of your life, I think it could help everyone flourish. Yes. That was a quote by a Japanese psychiatrist named Shoma Morita, who was one of the teachers of the sage as part of his lineage and what he taught and now what I teach as well. And it's based on a profound understanding of what is how reality works and what we can control and what we can't control. So the sage actually, after being in the sky of mind and metaphysical ideas and all these exercises I did in inner work, he brought me back down to earth uh, in, in the idea of simplifying my life. Because see, most of us have grown up in a psychological culture, um, believing that somehow we have to, in order to live wisely and well, we have to fix our insides. We have to have a quiet mind or uh, just positive thoughts or feel just the right emotions like courage and confidence and kindness and gratitude and love. Those are all wonderful feelings. But as the sage pointed out, we actually have very little control by our will over what we're feeling in any given moment. Feelings pass through us like the weather, and thoughts just appear in our field of awareness, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But rather than being overly concerned and trying to fix them, which we have little control over, they change all the time, thoughts and feelings, he suggested focusing on what we do. Mm. And thus the quote about you can give up mentally, but as long as your feet keep moving, it's based on the recognition that our lives are shaped primarily by what we have done. And if we look back on our lives and our accomplishments, it's not just about the feelings we've had or the thoughts we've had or generating the right thoughts or feelings. It's about what we've actually done. Mm. And so giving more focus over to what we have more control over, uh, which is our actions, uh, that, that really helped my life and it simplified it too. I think it's really interesting point that you raise because a lot of people, when they, they hear about manifestation or when a lot of teachers talk about manifestation, I think people think all they need to do is sit in meditation or pray and then those things will come running to you. But at the same time, what I've learned and, and what you speak about really is that you need to put your ideas into action as well. It's one thing to really want something, but at the same time, you need to actually be showing that you're doing something that will then enlist those things to be able to come to you. Exactly. Uh, there's a story about a man who, who uh, went to church every weekend. He prayed. He was a good man. He donated to charities. And, and he used to pray to God because were, money was really tight. And he said, please let me buy a winning lottery ticket. Mm. 
He prayed to God, please let me win a, a lottery ticket. And he did this every week and he gave to charity and he did good work and he was kind to people. And every week he would pray for this. And finally, an exasperated voice said, you want to win the lottery? He said, go halfway with me, buy a ticket. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's what, what we're all saying here is we have to bring it into action. Even as a writer, I can have great ideas, but unless I draft it, unless I do the work of typing it out yeah. or reciting it, bringing it into the world, and life is going to uh, recognize our efforts yes. over time. And that's why I recommend to people, dream big, that's fine, but start small and then connect the dots. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same when people say about the success of the podcast, like I didn't just think about doing it, I put everything together, put a plan together, went to the right people, interviewed people and put a lot of hard work into it. And then obviously the right things started coming my way, but there's a lot of work that, that is involved with any Absolutely. a lot of the manifestations that occur in your life. Yes, yes, you do the work. And, and I, I hope uh, those who enjoy this interview can thank you because <laughs> you, it was through, you reached out to me. And that's what made it possible for me to share with you and your listeners today. You talk a lot about the six stages of enlightenment in your book and the sage taught you that you, what these stages are and they were quite significant in your life. Could you take us through them? Because I found them to be very interesting. The guru had, from his illumined viewpoint, a schema of how we develop as human mm. beings, the seven stages of, of eternal life, he called it. Um, and, and the spiritual parts, the illumined parts were only the, the later stages. And the, it begins really with a physical uh, uh, dimension where young children, the first um, seven years of age, they're really incarnating fully uh, into the physical body. And then it's the emotional sexual stage for the next seven years maturing. And finally, the mental stage uh, in the third year. So presumably when someone reaches the age of 21, approximately, they are a fully mature uh, human being. People rarely are because we are not raised in an enlightened culture. And there are many other influences that block some of the full development. But that's the idea. That's the first three stages. And then comes, and it kind of corresponds to the classical chakra levels where we rise in the next stage, the fourth stage is into the heart uh, where certain intuitive psychic things can happen and, and then up through the different chakras, uh, higher uh, levels of experience. But the point is that's one model of our, our development into a more illumined, uh, broader vision of life and deeper understanding of okayness, the essential okayness of life uh, and even, even blissful elements, um, independent of what seems to be going on. But then the sage had a very different take on uh, the stair steps to enlightenment, but without the context of what he taught, as explained in the book, it'll sound a little crazy. Um, whereas the person doesn't feel any better at all going up through these stages, but they function better and they have a better understanding of what, what reality uh, is yeah. really about. Let's talk about when you had the realization that everything is my dream and a lot of what we, what we are around is almost an illusion. Well, I think 
many people may be able to relate to the idea they've had moments of unreasonable happiness, just kind of bliss or, or uh, deeper understandings. And in the Japanese tradition, the Zen tradition, it's called Kensho. It's a, a, a moment of momentary awakening or deep insight that just a breakthrough, sometimes working on koans or insol- problems, insolvable riddles that are insolvable by the rational mind. And the mind goes beyond that. It has kind of an understanding and breakthrough. Um, you know, the most famous one is what is the sound of one hand clapping? It mm. doesn't make a lot of sense, but, but people work on these kinds of things. So speaking of Kensho, when I was in the professor's advanced training, I was doing some physical movements while uh, doing, a, a, for the whole day, we were supposed to repeat uh, a mantra, an idea, which is everything is my dream. Everything is my dream. Everything is my dream. And I was repeating it internally while going about my day and doing these exercises. And suddenly, the only way I can explain this is I started laughing loudly because I got the, the, the punchline to the cosmic joke. And I realized that everything actually was my dream. It went from an intellectual idea to a realization. Mm. And all the worries about people liking me and the dramas of my life were all my dream. The meanings I put on things, the associations I had with them. And the breakthrough was liberating. That's all I can describe it. And I've had, I I describe in the new book a couple of uh, times where I had this breakthrough of, of like holy perfection. H-O-L-Y, and also W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy perfection of everything going on. I was unable to see the world as anything but perfect in its process as we evolve and grow. So I have had those moments, but I believe other people have had them too. I know they have. Maybe listeners out there can remember a time, oh, when I was a kid, or last week, or two years ago at a retreat, these breakthroughs can happen. And they're a taste yeah. of what is possible, a way of life. Uh, amidst the challenges of daily life, one can live with, uh, like at the center of the cyclone. And yeah. It's funny that you say that because I've had some of them in my life. And I remember one when I was reading your book, I was thinking about this. I, was, I had one when I was at a retreat and I was doing intense meditation and suddenly I was like imagining images in my mind and all this kind of stuff. And my body felt like it was on fire, but not on fire where it was uncomfortable, on fire in the sense that it had heated up so much and it was so charged that I had no doubt in my mind whatever I was thinking was going to come into fruition. I just knew it. It was that knowing, you know, you kind of, we you touch on like the knowing that that, is real when maybe before you may have questioned it and you know, even if it's just for a second, that everything that you may be worried about or were uncertain about at that moment, you see the full truth. And I remember we lay down after the meditation and because it was quite, there's a lot of people, there was someone that was lying, their feet were at my head and I didn't know who they were. And then after the meditation, this girl said to me, she goes, you're head was on fire. I could feel the energy coming out of your head and just making my feet so hot. She goes, I don't know what you were doing in that moment, but something, I could feel that there was something coming out of you. And I'll, I'll never forget that because that was almost like 
the the universe saying you you're not making it up. It's not all in your mind. Like I had right. the outside person saying like who I didn't know. Like I felt it too. There was something coming out of you, and what I was imagining at that time ended up coming into fruition. And it was just such a magical moment. And when you do have it, it is it can be for a split second, but it feels like everything comes into truth. Yes. And those can be very encouraging and intriguing moments Yeah, that uh, it's nice when they're validated by someone else as well. But I want to also say there may be people out there saying, wow, I never have experiences mm-hmm. like that, but that's okay because other people are, are different. Their genetics, their, their inclination, and they just may have these piercing insights at times. Yes. They don't have anything as dramatic to share. So uh, there's something for everyone, but these stories are stories of possibility and and higher promise. Even as we um, uh, continue our schooling as peaceful warriors and training in everyday life. Dan, at the end of your book, you mentioned when you wrote The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, people wanted happiness. And now you've come to realize people desire a sense of worth, meaning, connection and purpose. Yes. How did that change for you? Well, early on in my spiritual career, when I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior, I assumed the end of every search was happiness. Because if someone wanted a new car or an improved relationship or more money or they wanted to travel, all of it was the promise, then I'll be happy. I'll feel fulfilled. I'll feel satisfied. And I realized that I don't think the end point of human evolution is walking around with a gleeful smile on our face all the time. So it seemed to me we have deeper needs and deeper desires than that, than just a good feeling, even though that's appealing to many people. Anyone who could promise you this will make you feel good, well, that's very appealing to most of us. Um, But I believe deep down, we're looking for a sense that our life counts for something and to make sense of why are we here? What are we doing? Um, and uh, so a sense of meaning and connection, connection with ourselves, with other people, a real sense of connection, but even with the transcendent, which is what sent me on my quest and that I've been fortunate enough to be able to share w- with others in the new book. Dan, what do you believe is the purpose of the human experience? Uh, a man named Robert Byrne once said, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. And many people talk about meaning, but meanings, I believe we make up our meanings. Neurotic people make up neurotic meanings. Healthy people make up healthy meanings. Um, I don't think meaning is floating around in the air. If humans weren't on the planet, where would meaning be to a cockroach or, or a grasshopper? Um, We make up meanings. This means this, that means that. And there was a point we can be liberated from meanings. But purpose is solid. Purpose, a purposeful life. You know, it's been a major part of my teaching. I wrote one book called The Life You Were Born to Live, which is about finding a deeper uh, life purpose. By the way, anyone interested can go to my website, peacefulwarrior.com, and right on the splash page, they'll find a life purpose calculator. It's free. They can just put in their date of birth and get some a taste, interesting information. Uh, there's much more in the book. Um, I wrote another book called The Four Purposes of Life, and yet another book called Living on Purpose. So purpose has been central to this approach to living that I teach. Um, and I think that really is 
uh, a key for all of us. And I, I found my purpose. I've been lucky. I was lost for a long time. What am I going to do for a living? Um, but somehow I ended up uh, doing what I do now. My career and my calling are both intertwined. And so I'm happy to continue doing it uh, while I live. Dan, what's your definition of God or the divine? Well, you know, in the beginning, the opening of my book, I defined some key terms like spirituality, enlightenment, um, uh, and, and God. And uh, I have a quote by Muhammad, actually, who says, everywhere I turn is God's face. Mm. So people who ask, where is God? Uh, I, I'm not a particularly religious person. Uh, I don't believe a God sitting in heaven who is manipulating our world and creating everything actively. Um, but I do believe in a higher, some higher force of the universe, um, though it remains mysterious, and I'm content with that. But uh, to me, uh, uh, the question is not where is God, it's where isn't God. To me, I, everything is a manifestation of a divine reality that's much, much, much larger than we can even grasp. Dan, what's your most mystical experience? I'm having a mystical experience right now. Um, the, pres the present moment now has always been my favorite time. And so it's not a matter of waiting for the mystical experience, for me anyway. Um, someone once asked the sage that, and he said, well, I had, a, uh, I had a spiritual experience eating breakfast cereal this morning and then uh, wash, cleaning the house. Um, and, and that's more the sense of mysticism because mysticism means unity. It's about a sense of oneness. And yes, I did have that sense on the LSD trip, but I've also had it uh, while doing gymnastics and acrobatics. Mm. I've had it in communion with my wife. Um, so to me, mysticism is deeply intertwined with everyday life. It's not elsewhere. What is a life of greatness to you? I'll draw on a quote attributed to Jesus. He or she who would be the greatest among you is the servant of all. And I, to me, um, it's all about service. It's the only game in town, ultimately. That's why my favorite spiritual movie of all time is Groundhog Day, <laughs> because it, it ends with a commitment to service. That's all that's left. After all experience is done, uh, making a difference in the lives of others. Dan Millman, thank you for your commitment to service. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. It's been mutual. Thank you for the invitation, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.